0: Well, this morning we are in Mark's Gospel again as we continue to trek our way through Mark's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, I like to give a takeaway, uh, usually as I begin messages when I preach, I don't know what it is, I just like to do that. So if you want a takeaway, here it is from the outset, up front. Our God invites us to be on mission for Him and with Him as the unique message of Christianity continues to spread. So we have a God who's invited us to be on mission both for Him and with Him as His unique message, the unique message of the Gospel, continues to spread. Let me pray. Father, it is good to be together with Your people to sing praises to You, to acknowledge our sin before You, and to open our Word together. Father, we do thank You that You've given us a written, revealed Word that we don't stand up here in our own wisdom and insight and cleverness. God, I pray that Your Word would speak with power this morning to Your people. Thank You that we see Christ. We see Him clearly on display, clearly as God in these verses of text this morning. And Father, I pray uh, that as we look at your word, that you would transform hearts, uh, transform hearts and minds for our good and your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor Tim ended last time at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. As we see Jesus there, he transitions from the Sea of Galilee and he's going to go and visit his hometown of Nazareth. So look there with me at chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "'Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands?' And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Pastor Tim emphasized last time the clear argument from Mark's gospel concerning the deity of Christ. Mark is arguing Jesus is God. And we're going to see further evidence for this in these verses this morning. But Mark also makes it crystal clear for us that Jesus is fully human. Look there again at verse 2. Where did this man get these things? How are such mighty works done by His hands? To His family, He's family. He's one of them. And prior to the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, His divinity was concealed. But now in light of the coming of the kingdom, the miracles that He performs, they, they point to His divine nature. They give authority to his words. And yet, still we see unbelief. They were looking for something else. And thus they were unable to see him for whom he was. I think this is a helpful point for us to just remember and be reminded of. Close proximity or association with Jesus, knowing a lot about Jesus, spending a lot of time in church learning about Jesus doesn't necessarily translate into repentant faith. These verses that we're going to look at together this morning, they demonstrate for us the hardness, the total, utter, spiritual helplessness of the human heart apart from the grace of God. The end of verse 6 there, it marks the beginning of Jesus' third preaching tour that he's taking here through Galilee. The audience would have been primarily Jewish. That's who he's preaching and teaching to at this point, primarily Jews. And this morning we're going to look together again at at Peter's account through Mark of Jesus' witness to the Jews. And as we continue on, As we move forward beyond this morning in Mark's gospel, we'll see Jesus' ministry extends beyond Galilee and into Gentile territory. But still this morning, we're looking at Mark's record for us of Jesus' ministry to and his disciples to their own. He's preaching and teaching to his own, and we see how his own reject him. We see that disciples of Christ are those who are sent out on mission. Disciples are sent out on mission. Look there at chapter 6, verse 7. We see here now Jesus, He entrusts the message of the kingdom to His followers. The treasure of the kingdom is placed in jars of clay. Now, isn't this a bit shocking? I mean, consider this. Jesus is now going to allow His disciples to go out in His name with their track record of unbelief thus far. But this is how our Lord operates. This is the way He does things. He uses broken, humble jars of clay to extend the message of His kingdom. This is how the message of Christianity spread in the first century, and it's how it's continuing to spread today. Look there at verse 7, and I plan to read here all the way through verse 30 because I want us to see this group of scriptures together 7 all the way through 30. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to her. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist? And she immediately came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This account concerning John the Baptist's death It's sandwiched here between two important things. Between Jesus sending the disciples out on mission and then the disciples returning back to him. Mark could have put this account, this story of John the Baptist and and his death, he could have put it anywhere in his gospel, but he chooses to put it here. And I think that says something significant for us. It emphasizes for us the reality that Following Jesus is costly. It's costly to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. It could result in death. And it will definitely require sacrifice. Just a few chapters forward, and we'll probably see this next time. Mark 8 there, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Discipleship is costly. It's risky. What the disciples do there in in verse 29 there, when they heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That's risky. That could have been very consequential for them. Recently, in a D group meeting that, that I'm a part of, it was brought up in our discussion, and we were considering this very question If our faith is not costing us something, what does that say about our discipleship? What does costly faith look like for us? That's a great question. It's a question I believe we all need to ask ourselves as Christ's disciples. What is our faith costing us? Where are we sacrificing to see the kingdom advanced? The Herod that is mentioned here is not Herod the Great, but instead Herod Antipas. And we see this wicked wicked, and scheming, cunning of the human heart that takes place as the daughter of Herodias is able to convince Herod Herod Antipas, to execute John the Baptist. John the Baptist is martyred for preaching of personal repentance that is needed from Herod for marrying his brother's former wife. Now how interesting is this? Especially considering our current cultural climate, cultural context, that the first official Christian martyr of the faith dies for his stance on the sanctity of marriage. We see here the death of John the Baptist foreshadows what is going to happen to Jesus. I think it's also interesting here as we read through this account, Herod's struggle, he, he, he's perplexed by John. He he recognizes him as a righteous, godly man. In many ways, it, it's similar to to Pilate there at the end of Jesus' life, right? Where he's struggling. He knows Jesus is a godly man. He knows there's special powers that he's been able to display. But there's still a struggle. There's not full trust, full dependence. And I think that's just helpful for us to remember. It's impossible to be on the fence in relationship to Jesus. You are either for Him or against Him. And the fear of man, if if you are overcome by the fear of man more than the fear of God, more than an awe and a reverence for God, then you cannot be his disciple. The instructions that we see here concerning what the disciples are to take with them on their journey as they're sent out, it's very little. It's surprising how little and what he tells them not to take. It's exactly what we find there in Exodus 12, Prior to the Israelites leaving, coming out of Egypt. They're not to take any food, no money, no bag, limited supplies, but they're to depend on a limitless God. Few distractions will free the disciples to be focused on their mission and to be dependent on the one who is sending them out. They're sent out, limited training, limited supplies, and yet they have all they need for accomplishing their mission. Because their master and their savior goes with them. And folks, the same is true for you and I. We've got all we need. And as we go out into our community, uh, across the tri, across our state, wherever he leads us, we have all we need. We go in a defenseless posture. We're not trying to win an argument with arm twisting, but we go defenseless. We go with convictional kindness and we share the truths of our faith. Our dependence is on the power of the gospel to transform the heart. And I hope, as it does for me this morning, this encourages you. I know for me at times, I I fumble over my words. I, I lack faith that there is some fear of man at times. And yet, if I'm trusting him, if I'm dependent on him, that's right where I need to be. Obedient to go and to know and to show. And he will use my fumblings My inadequacies, your fumblings and inadequacies to accomplish His purposes. Each of us, as 21st century disciples, we are those sent out on mission. Every one of us. If you're here this morning and, and you're a believer, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're one who is sent out on mission. The question for us is, are we? Are we on mission? Now, yes, this may look slightly different based on uh, life stage and circumstances, but nonetheless, as his disciples, we are those on mission for him and with him. We may not all be called to cross a cultural linguistic divide in order to reach others with the gospel. Some will, hopefully many many will, and we all can support those that, that go overseas. But each of us, every one of us is called to be on mission right where we are. Reaching others with the good news of the gospel. I know for Pastor Charlie this continues to be a burden. It's a burden for us as a pastoral team. We want to lead as examples in reaching people where they are. And we want to equip every one of our members to reach people where they are. I was reading an article this week, a blog post seminary professor there, I think he's the president at Midwestern, and he was writing about leaders that had greatly influenced him. And he said one of the greatest lessons he learned is the ability from a leader who mentored him to say no. Because everything we say yes to means saying no to something. And there are so many good things out there we can say yes to, right? And I think as I was thinking on this passage, preparing this this sermon That just hit home for me in personal evangelism. It's going to mean, Chad, saying no to some good things in order to prioritize and devote time to have coffee, to have that meal with that person, to pursue that neighbor. And the same is true for each of us. Not only are the disciples sent out on mission for Jesus, but they're sent out on mission with Him. They go with him. And we see the importance here of being with him in the verses that follow. Let's pick up there at verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. this account of the feeding of the 5000 we may can fairly say confidently say it could have been up to 20 or 25000 if you consider women and children as well this this shows jesus has compassion he has compassion on the crowd even those who reject him he diagnoses them as sheep without a shepherd and while that is said with compassion The truth of it demonstrates judgment because their lack of a shepherd was due to their own unfaithfulness. Jesus shows in performing this miracle that he's certainly capable of being their shepherd. He's able to feed them with what amounts to just a little boy's lunch. Sometimes in our journey as Jesus' disciples, just like the disciples here, we only see that which is impossible. But as we trust and as we obey, He makes the seemingly impossible possible. The miracle is a claim to deity. It's a miracle of creation. Jesus creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He creates bread from no bread. He creates fish from no fish. Now these loaves, they wouldn't have been what we consider loaves. That would not make a lot of sense as a boy's lunch, right? Think of these more like little crackers or small pieces of toast. And and perhaps the fish is is like tuna fish to be spread on the the toast or crackers. But the crowd here again, they're only able to see Jesus as a giver of good meals. Remember here the, the historical context that they're in. It's one where the people of Israel, they were anticipating revolt. They were ready for a king. And if Jesus would have just stepped into that role as a political, military, revolutionary, they would have jumped on board and followed him, charging against the injustices of Rome. They were ready. A guerrilla leader would have been just fine for them. In John's gospel, we see this right after the same miracles performed there in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. We get this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is aware, he recognizes what they want, and again he withdraws. Jesus wanted to solve their soul problem, and yet they just wanted to have their physical needs met. Even though he was a fully sufficient Messiah, the Jews reject him. They ate and were satisfied. And He fully satisfies their physical need and He's fully able to satisfy their spiritual needs. Think in John's Gospel. We read some of that in our our service earlier. Jesus is the bread of life. He's living water. Those who come to Him and and eat and drink will never be thirsty, never be hungry. He and He alone is able to satisfy. And friend, if you're here this morning, that's true for you. That's true. At the deepest level of who you are, where you are spiritually, Jesus is able to satisfy. And if you're looking for anything else to satisfy the longings of your soul, ultimately, it's just like a broken cistern that holds no water. Ultimately, it will not, it cannot satisfy. Let's continue on. Look there at verse 45. So after this this miracle, this demonstration of his deity, we get this. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening, evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This idea here of, of Jesus intending to pass by them, that that can be easily lost in the English language. We might accidentally read this and think that Jesus had intended to pass by and just leave them there in the boat, there in the storm. But it seems much more likely that, that what's going on here is a reference to Exodus 33, verses 19 through 22, where if, if you recall in that passage, that's where God passes by Moses. He, he passes by him. This seems even more likely given that Jesus answers with the phrase, A go, a me. And when Moses asked God what to say if the people ask him his name in Exodus 3, God responds, A go, a me. I am who I am. Think back to the last time Mark had the disciples in the boat, there when we looked at Mark chapter 4. And, and they ask there in Mark 4, 41, Who then is this? Jesus intends to pass by them to show them His glory in order to show them the answer to the question that they ask. When they ask, who is this? He's passing by to show them His glory, to show them the answer that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And incredibly, still, this is not enough to soften their hard hearts. But that will happen in short order for the disciples and it will be at the father's initiative as we saw there in John chapter 6 we know this because in John 6:68 6, and 69 which happens the very next day there Peter gives a clear articulation of belief there's one other nugget of truth I want us to see here it's that phrase there where Jesus gets into the boat with them When he got into the boat with his disciples, the wind stops. I hope and pray some of you would be encouraged with this this morning. When the storms of life are just howling, when uncertainty abounds and you don't know which way to turn, if you'll allow Jesus to step into the boat with you, there is peace. The circumstances, they may not change. But you can experience peace. You can experience His comfort, His presence. And I know some of you, maybe many of you, need this reassurance today. Let Him into the boat with you to walk you through this trial, this loss, this current form of suffering. And experience His presence and His peace. Let's continue on there in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at, at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people, people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And where, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. So we see here again the desire on the part of the crowd, those to whom Jesus is teaching and preaching. They want the physical benefits that He provides, but they're still not fully able to accept Him as Messiah. And we see this conflict continue on in the verses that follow. Let's continue there in chapter 7, verse 1. Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and when he had entered the house and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his stomach it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled Thus he declared all foods clean and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In these verses we see concern. Concern on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus' disciples are not adhering to the oral tradition that had been passed down. And we see Jesus express concern that their oral tradition that had been passed down was actually leading to the breaking of commandments, which the original intent of the oral tradition was to assist in upholding the Torah. This practice of dedicating funds to, to Corban, or to God, it provided a means by which money that was originally intended to care for aging parents could be dedicated to the temple and it was no longer required to be dedicated to parents. The problem was that this practice actually led to the neglect of caring for aging parents, thus violating the command to honor father and mother. They were elevating their own tradition, human tradition, above the Word of God, thus exposing the corrupt nature of the human heart. And this is so easy to fall into. It's so easy to make our obedience, and our morality about us. But it must remain about Jesus and what He has done for us. Verses 14 through 23 there, they are some of the most insightful verses I think we find in all of Scripture describing the condition of the human heart and the uniqueness of Christianity. So in one sense telling us about who we are and also the unique claims of Christ and what He and He alone can do. According to Jesus, defilement is an issue of the heart. Evil desires, lust, covetousness, murder, pride, and on and on. Those listed there, they all begin within. They arise from the center, the core of the person. Foods that come from outside of the body And in, and eating with unwashed hands, that's not what defiles. Defilement, according to Jesus, is much deeper. For Christianity, inner motives matter. Our inner motives matter. Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, says this, There are, in the end, only two ways to read the Bible. It's basically about me, or basically about Jesus. In other words, it's basically about about what I must do or basically about what He has done. And folks, only what Jesus has done for us can change us from the inside out. We need new hearts. And even with new hearts, we wrestle, we battle with sin. We battle with the corruptness and the sin that still dwells within but, but think about this. Consider what a strong apologetic this is for our unbelieving culture. It's so honest. It speaks so true to who we are. Those who are honest and, and somewhat self-aware, they're able to recognize, they'll grant you that something is deeply wrong with them. And many realize, though they may have tried and tried, that there's nothing they can do to change this. The most natural conditions and attitudes to flow from the heart are consumed with self-absorption. They're consumed with pride, covetousness, lust, wickedness. This is my natural disposition apart from the grace of God. It's your natural disposition apart from the grace of God. Some may try and convince you, no, no, I'm not that bad. But continue the conversation. Keep going. Peel back the onion. Get to the core of who they really are. And you'll see that these conditions will be present. It is the human predicament. But thanks solely to the grace of God, there is a means by which the natural can become unnatural. Where that which we are most prone to becomes more and more distasteful. And where pure and right and godly thoughts and attitudes become more natural. Where supernatural, spiritual fruit flows from the heart. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ makes it possible to see to receive a new heart and to experience a transformed life, to truly be different from the inside out. This is the good news of the gospel. God's holy, we are not. We've fallen way short of what his law requires. But his son, who is fully human and fully God, he lived up fully Completely to the standard of God's law. He met all the requirements. And His death and resurrection proves for us that sin and death has been defeated. And that if you come by repentant faith, believing and trusting in Him, you can be saved. And you can be completely transformed. Having your old heart of stone removed and being given a new heart. A heart that is alive. That beats for God. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, part of being equipped to reach people where they are means being available. It means being available to go and to know. But it also requires that we know the gospel. If the Lord leads and allows us opportunities to show, we have to know the gospel. Now, this doesn't require you have to be a Bible scholar or have seminary training. It just means you know the core tenets of the faith, that you understand and can articulate the big picture. And remember this. this I, I truly believe this. If God has placed you next door to someone or in the same family with someone or at work in a cubicle with someone or on a team with someone, you are the best person to reach them. You're better to reach them than me or Pastor Charlie or Pastor Tim or anybody else because they know you. They see your life. They see the fruit that is flowing from your heart and your life. Something that helps me in, in teaching is an outline. I'll often use bullets when I'm putting together something. An outline uh, just helps. I think it helps when sharing the gospel as well to just have, a, have an outline. Where are you going? And four points that really help us here. I I think if you cover these four points, when you share the gospel, you will be covering the gospel. The points of of God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. The wording, the way I put things, it's not the same every time. But I want to touch on each of these points every time. I want to say something about the nature of God. His holiness, His just nature. I want to emphasize the dignity and worth of the person I'm sharing with as an image bearer. But I also want to make sure to point out our fallen nature, the corruptness of the human heart. I want to point out that Jesus is the only answer to the corruptness of the human heart. He's the only one that can change a person from the inside out. And I want to emphasize that the only appropriate response to Jesus is one of repentant faith. Turning from sin and turning to Him with full abandonment, full surrender of my will to His will. This is what it means to be a disciple. And folks, that's it. That, that's the gospel. And it's different from every other major religion because it's centered upon our obedience and faith being based on what has been done for us, not what we can do to earn God's favor. Christianity is the only religion, it's the only religion that provides a means by which inner motives can be made pure, where our thoughts and attitudes can really truly be made pure from the inside out. And this is only possible through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of being those who are sent out on mission for God and with God to spread this unique, life-changing message. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you're still holding on to the belief that you can change the corruptness of your heart, that you can obtain God's power, God's favor in your own power, in your own strength, I pray you would let go and surrender today. Come to Him with arms outstretched. Fall upon His grace and allow Him to help you live a life of obedient faith. Experience the joy and the satisfaction of living a life on mission for Him and with Him. Proclaiming the unique message of Christianity. Let's pray.